David and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11, 1-15. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. And he saw from the roof of a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And, the jo- and Joab sent Uriah to David. When, David. when Uriah came to him, David asked how jo- Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. When David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, Will the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths? And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house? to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives I will not do this thing then David said to Uriah remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back so Uriah remained in Jerusalem their day and the next and David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk and in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him and that he may be struck down and die. Then when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the Lord, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, for the chance to open your word, even to the difficult parts of your word, the challenging and uncomfortable parts. God, we counted a blessing Uh, that you have disciplined your children, you have spoken to us in our sin, you have given us a chance to repent. And so, God, I pray that even now, uh, as we hear your word and as we consider uh, what it looks like to follow and be obedient to you and to your word, uh, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and you would draw us to you, that we'd be conformed to the image of your Son, God, that we, um, though tested and tried, would not fall into temptation, uh, but that we would seek you and that we would seek forgiveness when we do sin. Lord, thank you for the chance now to be in front of your word. 
We pray that you'll bless this time we share in Christ's name. Amen. I imagine that the story you just heard, uh, you are familiar with. You, you know this story. Even if you had never read 1 Samuel 11 and we will be in chapter 12. In fact, even if you had never heard of David and Bathsheba, you have heard this story because it's a familiar story even outside of the pages of Scripture. The story goes like this. A highly reputable, respected, loved leader commits a significant sin that makes uh, all kinds of people upset. Whether it be uh, sexual in nature like David's here was, financial, moral, some other way, some significant sin, and there is a devastating fallout among all the people who were connected to that person. It's a prominent figure, a leader, someone that thereby considered one of the good ones, and so everybody is shocked and surprised when it happens. It feels confusing, it feels jarring, and most of all, it feels painful, devastatingly painful. Whether you know the person personally and are personally feeling the pain uh, of that fallout or you're just watching from a distance and you can just almost empathize with those who do feel it, it is painful to watch people fall from grace. Maybe even for me just to mention this kind of topic feels painful. feels painful to consider memories or stories, whatever else you may have that are in that category. For us, it could be like opening a wound. Uh, and in many ways, uh, that hurts. But like all wounds, it's better if you clean it, you know? So you got to go through a little pain to clean it. And for what it's worth, I didn't really pick this passage. <laughs> I just picked First and Second Samuel. I mean, obviously I knew it was here. But that's our job, is just to keep preaching chapter by chapter and take the good parts that we look forward to preaching and the parts we're not so excited about preaching, take them all together. But this actually is a very encouraging passage in one way. In that, praise God that the Bible addresses things like this. Amen? Because they sure happen. So praise God that He puts these kind of things where we can read about it and learn from it and see God's work in it. In many ways, um, it is comforting because these kind of things point us to the reliability of Scripture. (laughs) If we were going to make up stories about God's God and His people, we sure would not include this chapter in the Bible. We would just skip over, especially for such a prominent figure like King David. We would just ignore this if, if we were the ones making it up. But God's Word is not made up, and it speaks into the very hard, difficult things of our lives. The fact that this address means we have a guide through troubled and difficult times. And in many ways, what we get here in 1 Samuel 11 is just about as awful as it can get. It's terrible. If you've been reading with us through 1 and 2 Samuel, we so far have had a a beautiful picture of this King David. All the way back to 1 Samuel 16, uh, where he is anointed, we meet this incredible, uh, humble, young shepherd boy out in the fields who comes in and is anointed as the next king of Israel. And God's spirit rushes upon him. And from that point forward, really all the way till here, as we'll see, there's some other bits and pieces that weren't so great. But all the way up to here, everything seems to be going well. He has a reputation as one who kills lions and bears with his hands. 
And so then he goes in front of an incredible giant and becomes a, not just a lion and bear slayer, but a giant slayer too. Uh, because of that success, he is put in charge of, of many men in the military, and his great military success never records a, a failure or a, a time that his, his uh, army fails uh, on the battlefield. Uh, because of that success, the former king, Saul, gets jealous, and he is put on the run. But even in the exile period of his life, God is providentially providing for David every step along the way. So it wasn't a straight path to a throne. It was a windy path, but one that God was with him every step. And so this, this king finally comes to be the king that he was intended to, and all the other rival kingdoms and threats to the throne are quieted. And even last week, as we saw this uh, guy, he's on his throne, and he is showing kindness to a crippled son of his best friend Jonathan from a 15-year-old promise. I mean, this has been a beautiful picture of King David. And if you didn't know this chapter was here, if somehow you had not heard of David's sin and didn't know this was coming, you would be so shocked to find chapter 11 in this story. This was truly a righteous, holy, admirable, admirable king, so much so that he is called a king after God's own heart, a man after God's own heart. He is somebody who, when the, when the people, when God himself describes David, he's saying, if you want to know what my heart looks like, to get a taste of that, a flavor of that, look at, look at David. His heart matches mine until here, until this point. The same king that we just described, the same one who is a man after God's own heart, one time decides to hang back from battle to not go out and lead his men like he was supposed to do. And while he's relaxing, he lusts after a woman. And doesn't stop with just a glance. He learns who she is, that he is another man's daughter, another man's wife, and takes her, commits adultery with her. She gets pregnant, and then he plots to cover it up with lies and deceit and manipulation, and eventually murders that man's husband. That's the scandal. That's the almost unbearable fall from grace. You could argue that in this one chapter, David breaks almost all the Ten Commandments, at least six through ten, and in the, therefore at least number one, and you could probably argue for some of the other ones. It is awful. This is an awful picture of the king of Israel. And yet today, I don't think we would be very well served if we only talk about how bad David's sin is. <laughs> If we stop with just pointing the finger at David, we're going to miss a pretty big opportunity. We'd be far, far wiser, yes, to name his sin as sin, but then also take a humble look at what his sin might reveal about our own hearts. If David was a man after God's own heart, and he was, the Bible tells us that, and if he could commit a sin like this, we should be very, very cautious in saying something like, I would never do that. We should be very cautious to say, never in a million years. Because I'm confident David would have said something like that himself. So yes, I want you to see today how great of a king David was and how awful his sin is, but also to challenge you in this. No one, no one is above sin's destruction if it grows unchecked. No one, not you, not me, not a king after God's own heart, 
is above sin's destruction if it grows unchecked. So I want to encourage you to a posture of humility when you come and you read David's sin against the Lord and against Bathsheba. If David could do this, then we have to be honest that we could too. I'm not saying you will, but you could. And if we don't think we could, then we either have a really, really high view of ourselves or a low view of, of David. Because David, like we just said, was, was as good as it gets. All other kings in Israel's history are compared back to David, whether they walked like David did with God or not. That is the bar. He is the standard for all kings after him. So he is a pretty high-ranking guy in the view of, of Scripture. So we're either putting him down or putting ourselves up if we think that we would never do something like this. Here is a bold, blatant, persistent, horrendous sin. And if we think we could never do that, then Proverbs 16, 18 has a warning for us. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. No one, no one is above sin's destruction. So let us begin with humility. Let us be aware of our own depravity. Let us see ourselves in the mirror of Scripture. Let it point out the sin in our own hearts. Can we see the plank in our own eye? even as we're trying to help David take the speck out of his. Can we see our own actions? Can we see our own desires, our own motivations? Can, can we see the evil that we are capable of? Do we see the things that tug at our hearts? It's so easy to, to justify any one decision we make. It's so easy to come up with good and valid reasons why, why any one action we are taking is, is it's, it's permissible in this case, so we say. But there is no true defense for pride or lust or murder or adultery. We, we are much better off if we can just admit, yes, my heart too is prone to wander. If we can start with humility, if we can start with our, with our own temptations, then we're already safeguarding ourselves from going down this path. But if we can't admit it, then Satan has already put the seed in our hearts that may grow and flourish and become like a David sin against Bathsheba. Sometimes it, I, I think that when we see a sin like this, we, we want to come up with kind of a, a, an easy answer, an easy explanation for why David did this. Because if we can point to an easy answer, a thing that, that is so outrageous for why he did this, then we're, we're safeguarding ourselves. To, see, he, it was outrageous. I would never do that. It would never happen to me that way. We do this with other kind of tragedies, like health tragedies or accidents or something. We say, you know, well, well, it's different because they have that kind of cancer in their family. What are we doing? We're trying to safeguard ourselves. Like, that, that won't happen to me. Or, or, oh, but they weren't wearing their seatbelts, and I always wear my seatbelts, so that, that kind of accident wouldn't happen to me. Or, or you know, the, the school didn't follow their lockdown procedure. We, we try to come up with an easy explanation for why a tragedy happens. And why, the reason we want to do that is we're trying to say, this, this wouldn't happen to me. We're trying to buffer, put a buffer between us and that thing. And so it is here with, sin, with, with David's sin. We'll say, yeah, yeah, but here's an easy explanation for why this happened to David, or why he did this. And we're trying to say, I would never do that. But there is not an easy explanation. This is not a simple way of just avoiding a little bit of sin here and there. We have to be honest about our temptations. We'd be much better off to start with the humility to say, but for the grace of God go I. I need God's grace. We need God's grace. 
Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying, and the Bible is not saying, it is inevitable that every holy, righteous person will eventually fall from grace. That's not what he's saying. The Bible is full of example. Your life is full of example. You know all kinds of people who, though are sinful and, and do commit sins, have on the whole been faithful, godly people who have lived a, a whole life that has been above reproach and have continued to walk with the Lord. That is very possible and very much by His Spirit. It is, it is God's plan and desire for you. But we should be careful. One of the ways God keeps us on the path is to warn us about what happens when we go off the path. Learn from David's mistakes so we can have the humility to see the roots of sin and start there, start early, and get them out of our lives. One of the key problems to David's sin here in 2 Samuel 11 was that it grew and grew and grew. One sin led to another and led to another. There was no accountability. So this is why I say this, I say it this way. No one is above sin's destruction if it grows unchecked. If we allow one sin to lead to another and to another, we can get to a pretty devastating place. And maybe it's helpful here to, to point out, we, we, we use this kind of half-truth sometimes when we say something like, well, all sin is equal in God's eyes. Ask Uriah, <laughs> what would he have preferred? If David just had a lustful thought or if he actually went through with all that he did, right? Yes, we are all sinners in God's eyes from the moment we sin. But there is a progression to our sin that has more and more consequences and is more and more dangerous. So we should not say, oh, whether he lusted after Bathsheba there alone on the top of his roof or went through with adultery and murder. It was all the same. And God, no, it was not all the same. It was not all the same. Just take the way that God calls out his sin in a minute. But we have to see that, okay, sin can progress. It can get worse. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you neglected the weightier matters of the law. You, you tithe mint and dill and rue, but you did not practice justice. There are weightier matters. It is worse to commit adultery than to lust. Jesus tells us, I don't know why I'm chasing this so far, but now I'm, I'm here. Jesus tells us, yes, when we lust with our eyes, we are committing adultery in our heart. Yes, we have a sinful heart, but the consequences are not the same. You can grow, you can progress further and further and deeper and deeper into sin. So we've got to see that temptation for one thing to tumble into another so that we can say, i, I got to stop early because this is only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. That's one of the major things David mistakes here. See the progression of David's sin. It started so small. It started so, so small, so much so that we probably would not have even noticed it if it wasn't in the chapter where everything goes wrong. Verse 1 starts, In the spring of that year, when the time, the time when kings go out to battle, David went, nope, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. But David remained at Jerusalem. The narrator, the one who's telling this story to us, is giving us a clue right here from the beginning. He was in the wrong place. He was in the wrong place. How many of our sins start with just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. How many people's mamas told them nothing good happens after, you know, whatever, 11 p.m., 10 p.m., midnight, whatever, you know? Sometimes our sin just starts with being in the wrong place. David should have been out at battle, or at least, as Uriah is later, while Uriah is home with the battle, from battle, Uriah is still living with a battle mindset, an at-war mindset of being pure. But David is lounging on the couch, relaxing, and definitely not pursuing purity while he's at home. The narrator is helping us see where he should have been 
so that we can see the start of his sin. It starts early. Do we see the sin early? Do we see the very beginnings of our temptations enough where we can say, right here, I'm cutting it off. But if we allow ourselves one sin, it's easier to allow the other and the other and the other. I actually would argue, this is, I'm not, this is this, I'm less confident of this interpretation, but confident enough to tell you at least it's my interpretation. I think David's sin started back further than just right here. I think it at least started back in 1 Samuel 25 when David took two wives. And then he took a few more and took a few more and took a few more. Though the, the narrator doesn't call out David's sin in each of those moments, I think those were indications David's going to make some bad decisions about women. And he's not following the Lord's command for his covenant of marriage. But it at least starts with being here at home when he should have been at battle. That's the first sin. The second one is when he sees Bathsheba, he lingers lustfully over her. Sometimes your eye can't help what it can see, but your eye can help what it sees the second time. You can either hold on to that thought, you can either hold on to the thing with your eye, or your eye can leave it and you can take the thought captive. Rather than taking the thought captive, recognizing the sin in his heart, he acted upon it. He sent and inquired about her. Well, now it should be very clear what the answer is because she's married. Not to David, it wasn't clear. Reports back, somebody's daughter, somebody's wife. Signals from the servants, clearly whatever you're thinking, David, don't do it. That's what they said in so many words without saying that rudely to the king. But he does it. Verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. This is, is a horrible description of what he did to her. Sometimes people will ask the question, well, you know, what, what was Bathsheba's side of this? Is she guilty or, or not? Because we don't really get a description of what's going on in her heart and her mind. That's, it's, it's left out of the story. But the reason the narrator left it out of the story is because what she wanted was irrelevant to David. He didn't care. It didn't matter to him what Bathsheba wanted. Everything David says in this chapter happens. He is king and he has put himself in a place where there is nobody who questions his authority and what he says happens. So what Bathsheba wanted didn't matter. I, I agree with many commentators who say this is on par, there are young ears in the room, this is on par with rape. He, he is abusing her. He is taking her against her will. This is awful sin against her. He lays with her and sends her back home. Time passes, time to think, time to consider, time to wonder. News arrives from Bathsheba. The first time she gets to speak in this passage is the words, I'm pregnant. Another opportunity for David to say, I, now I know I have messed up. But he doesn't. He just keeps going deeper and deeper into sin. He tries this time to cover it up. He, used, he tries to manipulate Uriah, tries to deceive him, tries to bring him back home. And Uriah, if we go further in 2 Samuel, we see in 2 Samuel 23, he is listed as one of David's mighty men, kind of a green beret of the army. This is not just a lowly foot soldier. This is one of his best of his best. And he comes home and David looks at this man in his face who he has just abused his wife and can talk to him about the battle and things going on? Are you kidding? How does he stomach that? How does he stomach that conversation? And it's not just one conversation. It's multiple days of David trying to manipulate Uriah so he can cover up 
his sin. And Uriah doesn't fall for it. Uriah is proving himself to be more faithful, more holy, more godly than the king who's supposed to be the king after God's own heart. Even to the point where David gets him drunk. You say, how do you get some? David's the king. Remember, everything he says happens. Nobody can say no to King David right now. So when David puts the drink in front of Uriah and says drink, he has to drink. And he makes Uriah drunk. And even a drunk Uriah is more holy and more righteous than King David in this moment. He is unwilling to go and help David cover up his sin because he is faithful to his army that is on the battlefield, even when he doesn't fully have his mind going. David is drunk on sin, drunk on his own lust, drunk on his own pride more than he's got Uriah drunk on wine. All of these are more and more opportunities for David to stop. There are so many opportunities for David to take an off-ramp, to realize that he is going down a trail that's not going anywhere good, to stop the tractor from rolling down the hill that's brakes have gone out. This snowball is growing and growing and growing, and there are so many opportunities to divert it, to get it off the path of destruction. And David won't do it. He will not do it. He will not stop. He keeps going. So much so that he even forces Uriah to carry his own death warrant out to battle. Did you catch that detail? David writes a note about Uriah being killed in battle. And he seals it so it's concealed. And Uriah is the one holding it and delivering the message to Joab, the commander, that tells him to kill Uriah. David manipulates Uriah to carry that message. He doesn't even have the, the guts to kill Uriah himself. He makes Joab command Uriah to be killed by the Ammonites. This is, this is bad. Are you picking that up? <laughs> like, this is really, really bad. And, and I'm intrigued by, by the time and action in all of these, in the way this story is told. You hear all these, all these really short, direct verbs that are given. David sent Joab to war. David saw Bathsheba. David sent and inquired about her. David sent messengers. David took the woman. David lay with her. David sent word to Uriah and so on. It all sounds very direct, very abrupt. David says it and it happens over and over again. This is a, a, a quickly speeding up problem of sin. And you probably know sin like that, don't you? Once you do one, then here's the momentum's going and it's a lot harder to turn it around. David had so many opportunities to get off, get off this path, but the momentum is going and he doesn't have the courage, he doesn't have the fortitude, he doesn't have the ability to stop it. It just keeps going on and on. Stop sin early, but when it starts going, look for any off-ramp you can, because the further you go, the harder it gets to stop. This isn't just things that are officially addictions, but it very much acts that way. So many times our sins are like this, they just multiply and multiply and multiply. And the further we get in them, the harder it can be to stop. One bad decision leads to 10. One click on the computer leads to 10. One lie leads to 10 lies. And it can feel out of control. And it feels almost unstoppable. But is it really unstoppable? No. Think about this. This is told so fast that it can seem really quick. But think about the time that all this would have taken. David is wandering just kind of meandering on his roof. He's not in a rush. He sees her. He has time to think, is this a good idea or not? We don't know if he does ask himself, but he has the time. He sends for her. Again, there's time waiting. 
Who, what, what's the message back? Oh, who, this is who she is. He's got time again to think, should I go and send for her or not? He's got all kinds of time. Or even take the time between adultery and pregnancy. How long was that? At least a couple weeks, right? Maybe longer, maybe a month. He's got all this time to consider his actions, and yet we have no record. He was not, we don't get a story of he was, his conscience was stricken, and he was so worried about what he had done. When he sends for Uriah, multiple days traveling back and forth, there's a lot of time here. There's at least a month of this whole episode going on. How many times did he have to go to sleep at night thinking about what he had done? How many times did he have to wake up in the morning and the first thought of his day was about the actions that he was in the middle of, a, of taking on? Sometimes we think our sin is just so fast I can't stop it. But you have time. If we'll stop and consider, is this next step the best next step? Do you know what's missing in all that time and all that action, all that speeding up sin? Accountability, for one. Nobody can speak into David's life. Nobody is allowed to correct him. He hasn't invited counselors around him that can help speak truth to his power. But the other thing that's really missing, if you read through First and Second Samuel, that sticks out to me like a sore thumb, over and over again, you know what David's habit has been? I, th- I didn't go back and count this week. I think it's been seven times, maybe more or less, that David inquires of the Lord. It has been the, the heartbeat of David's leadership up to this point. At every critical juncture, when he's about to do something, it says David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, yes, go and take that place. Yes, now is the time for you to go to the kingdom and become king at Hebron. Over and over again, David inquired of the Lord. You know when, David, when, when the Lord's name is finally mentioned in 1 Samuel 11? At the very end, when the Lord inserts himself in the story. David never inquires of the Lord, is this a good idea? Should I be lusting after her? Should I be taking her? Should I be killing? He, of course, doesn't ask because he doesn't want to know the answer. He doesn't want to know the answer, so he does not inquire of the Lord. David, in verse 25, tells Uriah, Do not let this matter displease you. That's his report back about the the battle that has gone on, and Uriah has been killed, and the other other men have been killed. So he tells Joab about, about their death. Do not let this matter displease you. Literally, the, the words there, there's good reason for it to be translated that way, but literally it says, do not let this be evil in your eyes. David looks at murders that he's just caused, and he says, not evil. He looks at evil and calls it not evil. Two verses later, verse 27, God finally, we see God's opinion on this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's the ESV. And again, literally it says, it was evil, the thing that David had done in the eyes of the Lord. David is looking at evil and calling it not evil, but the one whose view matters is the Lord, and he's looking at evil and calling it evil, even when it's in the king who's supposed to be the king after his own heart. You may know this story, and you may know that God extends grace, but similar to how we might miss how early David's sin starts, I think we also might miss how early God's grace starts. I would argue that God's grace starts right there in verse 27 when the Lord expresses his opinion. Or maybe it starts earlier when, when, David, when God didn't strike David dead in the middle of any of this, right? But the first active step of grace that God takes then comes in chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Don't miss this. 
In chapter 11, who does all the sending? David does. David's in charge. When David speaks, things happen. People go, messengers come, people die, women are called and summoned according to the king's command in chapter 11. And in chapter 12, the king of kings makes it clear who is the king. It is not David. God is the one that does the sending. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And that sending was an incredible act of grace. As parents, we know this, don't we? Disciplining your children is an act of love. The most unhelpful, unloving thing you can do for your children is to let them be raised with no sense of morality and difference between right and wrong. You are cursing them for the rest of their lives if you give them no sense of right and wrong while they're at home. Discipline is love. God the Father looks at David, his beloved king, and he sends a messenger to go and tell him his sin. That messenger is a gift of grace. It's a gift of grace. It's going to be an uncomfortable gift, but it is a gift of grace nonetheless. Nathan boldly comes before David like no other prophet has been able to do, no other counselor has been allowed to do. And Nathan, who's just you know, seen all this happen, the lying and the murdering and the adultery and all this, tells David a parable, a very simple parable. There were two men in the town, one rich who had many, many flock, and one poor man who had just one little ewe lamb. The rich man, all his flocks, receives a visitor, and he wants to cook a meal for him, but doesn't want to take one of his own flock. So he goes to the poor man and takes this one poor little ewe lamb, who the man had raised like, his own, like, a, like a, a daughter to him, it says. And he steals that man's lamb and kills the lamb and cooks it for his visitor. Nathan's story works. David is outraged, 2 Samuel 12, 5 tells us. And God, through Nathan, invited David to see his own sin by seeing his sin in somebody else first. So many times that's what has to happen, doesn't it? We can't, we're blind to our own sin, so we have to see it in somebody else and we go, oh, that's me. Can I tell you that's part of the reason this story is here? Part of the reason this story is here, why the, the, the parable that Nathan tells and the life that David lives, part of the reason it's here is so that it can be a mirror for me and you to look at and see our own sin. Nathan had to, David had to see his sin in the parable in order to see his own life. What does it take for you and me to see our own sin? What does it take for us to be honest about the sins we are addicted to? About the lies we tell, about the snowball effect, about the addictions, uh, about the things that we are trying to keep in the shadows. God is shining a light into our lives today to say, here it is. I want you to see your sin. I want you to see it for what it is. And I want you to hear that as a gift of grace. It is grace that God is calling us out on sin. It is grace that God is shining the light into the dark corners of our life. If God didn't love us, He wouldn't discipline us. But He loves us enough to show us our sin. David is outraged by Nathan, the man in, David's, in Nathan's story. And Nathan tells him, you are the man. And this is the one time you don't want to be the man. <laughs> this is not a positive thing. Nathan tells him, you're the man who has just stolen the lamb. Today, I, I want you to hear this. No matter who you are, or what you've done, what kind of sin you've been in, whatever addictions you've had, whatever lifestyles have been snowballing out of control, past or present, I want you to hear this gift of grace. No one, no one is beyond God's grace 
if it leads us to repentance. No one is beyond God's grace if it leads us to repentance. Surely if anybody had gone too far, it was David, right? All these snowballing sins, all this out of control lifestyle, surely this is too far and he can't come back from this. If David can come back from it, God's got enough grace for you and me too. Praise God that there is hope. Praise God that whatever sin you're trapped in doesn't have to be a trap for the rest of your life. It doesn't have to be. God has shown grace in shining light into your life so you can repent. You can turn from your sin and follow Him. God shows us the horrible nature of sin in David in part so that you and I can see sin in us. And that, that grace is an act of discipline. Nathan describes sin, David's sin back to him, and it's probably worse than David realized. And God was reminding David of all the past grace that he shows him. He says, I anointed you king. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave you Israel. I gave you Judah. And I love this line in 2 Samuel 12, 8. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. I, I'd have given you anything you needed, David. He calls him out on his sin. In verse 9, he tells him what he did wrong. You have despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight. What was David's biggest sin? Adultery? Murder? It was despised the Lord. He hated the Lord. He rejected the Lord. He broke the first commandment, not just 6 through 10. Verse 9 continues, You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you've taken his wife. When we break the first commandment, so often we break 6 through 10. When we, when we dishonor God, we dishonor others. And that's exactly what he happened here. He murdered, he stole, and because of that, God tells him there will be real consequences for your sin. We probably should hear this, probably already know this, but we can be forgiven of our sin. Praise God. We'll see that in a second. Many times, God does allow very real consequences, sometimes consequences that last for a lifetime for our sin. We should be very cautious, especially this side of sin, to say, it's okay. I know that God always offers forgiveness. He does. And sometimes there are deep, devastating consequences we have to live with. We're going to finish out David's story over the next two weeks. And I'm going to tell you, it's not a beautiful picture. From this moment forward, David's life has changed forever. David does not end well. Things do not go smoothly for him. There's still some ups and downs, but this changes the trajectory of David's life forever. There are real consequences for our sin. We should be cautious in presuming on God's grace that He's going to miraculously just make it all peachy here. We have to be careful when we come to sin, recognizing that there are consequences. In this case, the child dies. Bathsheba's child dies. And he warns, God tells David, a sword will never depart from your house. It'll never depart from your house. He's going to live the rest of his life in battle. And even that being said, David hears God's judgment. He hears God's discipline. And he practices something incredibly beautiful. Simple, genuine, humble repentance. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Do you hear that? We, many times we think of repentance as this emotional outpouring, overly dramatic act. And, and Psalm 51 is pretty, pretty dramatic and pretty emotional. That's what David writes in response to this. There is a place for that. But here, 
hear this form of repentance. David is rendered speechless. The guy who wrote so many psalms, the guy who's poetic, the guy who can sing, the guy who can dance, here, he doesn't have a whole lot to say, and he shouldn't. All he says is, I have sinned against the Lord. It's good news that no one, not King David, not you, not me, no one is beyond God's grace if it leads us to repentance. God comes to David in discipline, and David is willing to receive God's grace of discipline and repent. He can say, I was wrong. Sometimes that's the hardest thing to say, is it not? It is the hardest thing just to admit, yes, I messed up. But God does it, or David does it, when he sees the sin that God calls him on. Uh, my, my goals today, I, I want us to be humble in the face of sin. I want us to find hope in sin. But I also hope and pray somehow that we would find healing in sin. When somebody has sinned against you or whether you have lived in a lifestyle of sin, I hope that you can find healing. And it begins with repentance. And it begins with allowing our hearts to forgive others. Allowing when they repent, allowing as God's working in somebody else's life for us to forgive others. Humility, hope, and healing. David must have understood God's grace because you know what David does? He asks for even more. That's a sign that you understand grace is when you ask for even more. David doesn't get it in this case. David fasts and prays asking for this child to live and he is not given that, that gift. The child does die. Bathsheba's son does die. But God has a plan. God does, in fact, continue to show grace. And he sends another son through Bathsheba, Solomon, who we meet in chapter 12 for the first time. And we have an account of victory, another battle that David goes out and wins. God's grace multiplies. God continues to show grace even to this guy, a sinner. No one is above sin's destruction if it grows unchecked. And no one is beyond God's grace if it leads us to repentance. I want to finish by pointing out a connection, a few connections here. David looked a lot like Adam here. He saw the forbidden fruit and he took it and implicated a woman in his sin by his own negligence. David, like Adam, was cursed and yet receives grace. David does not die, but just like Adam's son eventually died, so did David's son. But David, just like Adam, is promised that there is coming a seed, another son, another offspring, through whom salvation would come. We meet Solomon here, who points forward to another son of David, through whom God would bring redemption. In God's case, he sent a son to do both those things, to die. Just like David's son died, just like Adam's son died. But in God's case, this other descendant, the other son of David, is the same son who also brings life. David's sons, one dies, one, one through whom, uh, through one of David's sons, Solomon, he brings life. In Jesus' case, it's one and the same person. A descendant of David takes the curse upon us that we deserve, takes the death we deserve to die takes the destruction our sin has merited and he buries it in a tomb and he comes out alive. That's the hope we have. That's the hope we have in our sin and in the sin of those who've sinned against us is that all sin one day will be paid for. You don't have to get vengeance. You don't have to get revenge. 
all sin will be paid for, either on the cross or in eternity in hell. Sin will be paid for. You don't have to get payment for it. We can trust in Christ. He has given us freedom. He has given us life. He has brought justice. He has brought peace. And He's brought a way for us to experience God's grace in a brand new way. He came through the line of David. And He came so that we could know the Father. I don't know what you've done, but you're not beyond God's grace. He can reach you. He's calling us to repentance. Don't let sin grow in your life. Let God lead you to a new life in following His Son, Jesus.